So for this morning's lesson, uh, we're going to start uh, on your handout. We've got the uh, Baptist Catechism. So we'll continue to work through this as we go through our study. So we'll start with question seven, and I'll ask the question, and then we'll respond together. So question seven, what is God? Answer, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Excellent. So that is a really like shorthand way to help us as we work through this um, and I also wanted to point out, as we're working through our doctrine of God, it's helping us as we, um, we better understand the things that we hold dear. So I've got next on your notes from our Confession of Faith, the, the, the Second London, the 1689. So in uh, chapter 2, it, it t- talks about the doctrine of God. And in paragraph 1, and these are some of the things we're going to hit on this morning, and I've got those underlined. If I could have a volunteer read uh, paragraph 1 for us. All right, Crystal. All right, fantastic. So those underlying parts, that's really what we're going to be drawing out over, I think we've got four sections that we'll be hitting as we, as we work through our, our outline this morning. So last week we hit on, as kind of like that like banner verse or banner verses, right? We hit on Jeremiah 9, right? Let the wise man boast in his wisdom, let the strong man boast in his might, but let the people of God what? Let them boast in this. Right, that they that they know me and understand me, right? And then God, the Lord, the Lord God goes on to describe Himself, right? In that beautiful picture, right? So we, as God's people, we enjoy, and that's what we that's what we boast in is that we know Him. Um, so this morning, I wanted to give us another verse, right? Again, just just trying to help us connect as we think about the doctrine of God and 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 um, what that's doing in our in our own heart. So in Colossians one, can I have someone read Colossians one uh, verses nine and ten that we've got on our notes? Yeah, excellent. And we think about this, right? So as Paul is praying for the church in Colossae, right, how much more should we pray, right? Should we pray for these things not only in ourselves, but in our family, in our church, uh, uh, and, and, and for others, right? That they also especially would increase in the knowledge of God, not, not just being theoretical, but also being experiential, right? That, that fellowship, that sweetness that we have as we draw near to him. In, in, in worship and in praise. So, um, so just a quick uh, recap from last week. So when we think about last week, we talked about God as simple, right? And, and really what that was focusing on was uh, God does not, he's not divisible into parts. Uh, and so when we think about God's attributes, it's not like God is made up of different attributes. And when we put them all together, that becomes God. God, God is a uh, simple being from that standpoint. He's not... Um, He's not uh, divided or, or made up of, of parts. And overall, what we started last week, and we're going to continue this week, is the negative attributes, right? But not negative from the standpoint of, like, unfavorable, but negative from the standpoint of we're negating something, right? We're saying that something is not so as we see in others. So, um, and we've already hit on that. Perfect. So we'll go ahead and hop into our notes. So the first one we're going to hit on is eternity, right? Um, which is uh, the negation of succession in God. Uh, and, and, and when we talk about succession, we're talking about time. So on your notes, we've got, um, we've got a couple of texts that I'd like us to look at and think about before we uh, kind of work through this together. So can I get someone to read uh, Psalm 90, uh, verse 2? I'm going to, all right. Before the mountains were 
Yeah, so there's this, here's this declaration, right? That, that God is from everlasting and to everlasting. And it's, and it's trying to use language to help us get across this concept, right? Is there really a from and a to eternity, right? No, not really, because eternity uh, uh, is, is above or beyond time. But it's, it's uh, um, trying to use common language to explain it. Uh, who, who could get Psalm 102 for us? Uh, verses 12 and then 26 through 28. Excellent. Right, so we see this idea. You are enthroned forever. God never ceases to be God ruling and reigning on his throne, right? And then, and then this contrast, right, with, with creatures and creation, right? They, they will perish, but God will always remain. And, and, and then we see that in verse 28, right? That, that we as God's people, his servants, we shall uh, dwell securely. And notice how how that's connected with this idea because God will not wear away like a garment, right? He instead is enthroned forever, this idea of eternity. And then who could get Deuteronomy 33 and then another one to get Isaiah 57? Who can get Deuteronomy 33 on your notes? All right, Brian? The eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemies before you and said, destroy. All right, so... Even the scripture will then use this declaration to talk about God, right? That God is eternal. And then who, uh, who can read for us uh, Isaiah 57, 15? All right, Arnie. All right, excellent. Yeah, so what a beautiful picture, right? So we think about God as holy. We think about him as separate, right? And how else is he described? As the one who inhabits eternity, right? Again, just twisting our mind a little bit as we think about this, this concept of God who inhabits eternity. And we also see these other phrases, like, for example, in Isaiah 41.4, where the Lord is described as the first and the last, right? The beginning and end even though with God, there is no beginning and end, right? But he, he qualifies himself that way to contrast himself with creatures. Or for example, in Revelation 1.8, right? Where he's declared to be the alpha and the omega, right? So not only is he from the beginning to the end, but then when we use the words alpha and omega, it also has this idea of letters, right? So in the Greek alphabet, you've got alpha, Right? That, that's the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Then you have omega. That's the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And so even all knowledge that is possessed with words as they come from letters, right? God knows all those things and he knows them from eternity, right? All those things are, are working together. So, so those are some helpful ways that we think about that God is eternal. So then how should we think about this reality of time? So if you will, uh, go in your Bibles, we can, we can go back to the book of Genesis, right? So Genesis is the book of beginnings. And, and we'll see this in, in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at a couple of things here. As we think about time, that time is a created uh, reality. So in Genesis 1.1, where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens... And the earth. And so we see there in, in, in verse one, right, that idea of in the beginning, right? So we went from something that was not so, right, to something that was so. And in so doing, that was the entrance of time, right, where we then start to measure. And let, let me give you an example of this, right, where then there become ways for us to measure time. And God creates that and how he creates his universe. So turn with me um, down to verse, verses uh, 14 through 15. 
So in verse 14, God says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Right? So God speaks, comes into existence, right? And then, then we see in verse uh, 15, and, and it is so. so. So what's going on here, right? So we see this idea uh, specifically of days and years, signs and seasons. So what is a day? Well, a day is uh, the earth's rotation, I'm sorry, the earth rotating, right, in regards to its position to the sun. And that's how we measure time from a day standpoint, right? And then we also have years, and years, right, is, uh, is the earth's revolution around the sun, right? And so that, you know, one year is like, you know, the full, you know, elliptical, you know, you know the, if you will, you know, the earth kind of riding the, you know, circular looking type, uh, type ellipses. So then we have day, we have year, and God has given them in order to help us measure succession that happens in time, right? But then we also have uh, something else that's not specifically called out, but we do use for uh, time, and, that, and that's months, right? And months relate to one month is the uh, rotation of the moon around the earth, right? And the, the different phases that, ha- that happen there. So then we have day, month, and year. And what is all that doing? That helps us as creatures to understand created reality, right? Succession, one moment to the next moment. And, and it's measured um, in, a, uh, in, in, a, um, in, in the same way with, with each passage or each uh, pa- passing moment. But I just wanna, I wanna bring up something interesting. So this is a little bit of a you know, detour. We'll do it for like 30 seconds. Notice one thing that's not specifically called out here that is also not related to a created reality, but we use it to measure time, right? So it's not connected to like a moon or a sun or revolution or rotation or anything of that nature. And that's what? That's the week, right? A week is not connected to any of these created realities in regards to sun, moon, earth, and and some of that. And it's really interesting. So... A.W. Pink, he's an, he's an older author from, you know, I think about 100 years ago. And he's got a book where he's, where he's working through the idea of, of, uh, of God's Sabbath and what's happening. And he traces through the, the early chapters of Genesis. And that's one of his proofs that, that peoples have understood God's Sabbath because time has been structured to reflect this six days of working and one day of rest in a total of seven days that make up a week. And, and, and so he goes on to you know, trace this idea where we see this idea of time and its measurement, but it's something that's not connected to creation itself, but something that God did. So a little bit of a, a detour, but I did find that interesting. So going back to the idea of time. So time itself is a created phenomena, and we use time language in order to describe realities outside of time, like eternal, right? So for example... Um, uh, you can turn in your Bible. Look with me uh, in, the, in the Gospel of John. Right? So Jesus is talking in John chapter 17, which is known as uh, you know, the great high priestly prayer of Jesus, where, where he's praying for his people before he departs. But notice the language that he uses here to describe, uh, uh, he uses this before language to try to help us better understand eternity, right? And, and how we think about God in eternity. So Look with me in in, uh, John 17, and look at verse 5, where he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you, what? Before the world existed. Right, so it's using this, this before language, right, to help us capture this concept. But then notice also, similarly, in verse 24, where he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me, what? Before the foundation of the world, right? So there's this, so we're still using this language, though, to try to help capture 
this reality that is stretching our mind, right? Because this reality is, is that God himself is outside of time. So what's this the equivalent to, right? So this is, this is the equivalent of using accommodating language to account for our creatureliness, right? This, this is like a parent leaning over and talking to a four-year-old to explain the universe, right? And pulling out, you know, a watermelon, an orange, and a grape to give you sizes of like, hey, here's the sun, here's the earth, and here's the moon, right? It, it's nothing like that in, in a certain sense, right? But it's conveying to this four-year-old just to be able to, to get this idea. And in the same way, in our creaturely weakness to understand concepts that go beyond, you know, what we can fathom, God is using this, this, this accommodated language. He's accommodating for, for our creatureliness. So he's helping us to understand, and he's using language that's fit for our capacities. So before, um, before, before we move on, so real quick, when the, uh, so just to make like a contrast, right? So when the Bible talks about us getting eternal life, right? To, to whoever believes, right, we're granted eternal life. And that's the thing that we look forward to, right? Life with God in Christ forever. But when we think about that eternal life, should we think of that differently than how we think about God's eternity or God being the eternal God? And the answer is yes, right? Because we don't change from being a creature to becoming creator from that standpoint, right? So even in, you know, if you will, eternity future, right? After resurrection, we're still creatures. Now we're resurrected creatures. We're creatures in glory, but we don't transition to become godlike where we have life in ourselves, right? So that's just a, you know, just so, you know, it's funny, we were talking about that, I think, with uh, Caleb last night, and he was kind of stretching his mind. He's like, so hold on, wait a second. What happens here? You know, when we think about, you know, the future, right? Like, how, how do we, or do we become eternal? And it's like, well, not really, but we, but we go on forever, right? So making sure that, that we make that uh, nuance. So, so lastly, before we exit, thinking about our eternal God, I just want to commend another book to you. So I know I've commended several books. So here's another one. Put it on your list. I actually, so it is on the back of your, of your notes, under, under resources. So Stephen Charnock, uh, this is another, another one. So he's got the book, uh, The Existence and Attributes of God. This is like uh, a really, really helpful classic book. Uh, they actually just, Crossway just did a reprint of it, or, or they're doing a reprint right now. But if you're an ebook person like I am, it is online for free on monergism.com. And I, one of the things, I mean, don't me wrong, his, his, his section working through doctrine is super helpful, and I would commend that. But he also lists all these uses of the doctrine, right? How should we approach and think about God, right, in light of this attribute that we're learning? And I'll just say, he's, he goes on and on with, with so many helpful examples, right? And not only for believers, but even for unbelievers, right? Like, for example, you know, unbeliever, you sinned against an eternal God. That should absolutely terrify you, right? A God who dwells in all of eternity, and you've offended him, right? But then for a Christian, right, you think of his comfort, right? That God from eternity, right, won't change. And uh, in fact, I'll quote him here where he says, What hopes of a resurrection to happiness can we have or of that full duration of it if that God that promised it were not immortal to continue it as well as powerful to affect it, right? So we, we see how this is connected and how that brings us comfort. It's like, God, because you're eternal, I know that resurrected life, that life that I'm looking forward to in light of the suffering that we have here, I know that it's not going to change because you, you are not bound by time. All right. So that was thinking about God's eternity. Norm. Do you happen to have the page numbers of uh, that particular book? I don't. I have the Kindle location numbers, <laughs> if that would be of use to you. Um, but uh, uh, what, what, what chapter? Yeah, yeah, so this was under, um, I think it'll be like uh, uh, attribute of eternity or attribute uh, uh, or eternal attribute, so something of that flavor. And then he goes through the doctrine, so about halfway through the chapter, and then he goes through like of uses, and then he's got it all outlined by the numbers. 
Yeah, but again, I, I, would, I would commend that to you. Really, really helpful. All right. So thinking about God as eternal. So next, let's turn to God as immense. Now, I, I, I'll be honest with you. Using this term immense caught me off guard, right? Because I'm, I'm used to this, uh, the term uh, omnipresent, right? That's, that's generally how I've thought about, about, about God from this standpoint. But if we notice from our confession, right, if, if, uh, if you look on your notes, that uh, in that chapter 2, paragraph 1, where it says God who is immutable, and then it says immense, right? So in our confession, it's using this language. And, and I think this, this language is to be preferred. So uh, the, uh, the idea of omnipresence is that God, right, omni, right, all or every, and then presence, right? So God is, is everywhere, right? Um, but, we, but that also misses uh, something, or, or, or maybe there might be a more holistic way that we can say it. So I want to uh, use this um, to, to quote Renahan. He says, some speak of God's omnipresence, but in so doing, they run the risk of affirming only one side of the doctrine of divine immensity. God is everywhere, right, the idea of omnipresence, and yet contained nowhere immensity. These doctrines are not at odds at all, but immensity is a superior concept for the truth of God's unlimited presence, right? So when we say omnipresence, we're referring to this positive idea, right? God is everywhere. But then also when we're trying to negate it, we're trying to say that, but at, at the same time, God is not at all limited to space, right? He's not confined to space. And so we're also trying to negate, um, negate this creaturely aspect of it. And I thought, so, um, so Louis Burkhoff, who I've also said, hey, he's got, he's very, he has a very succinct way of helping work through some of these doctrines. And I commend, uh, commend his, his portion to you. So he's got a definition, um, and so on your notes, uh, where it says uh, immensity definition, would someone be willing to read that on your notes on the bottom there, on, on page one? That perfection of the divine being by which he transcends all spatial limitations, and yet is present in every point of space with his whole being. Yeah, excellent. So... He transcends all limitations and yet is present in every point of space with his whole being. So, let, so, let, let, so let's go ahead and let's look at this. If you will, let's, let's prove the doctrine. And so uh, let, us, let us look at a couple of texts. And uh, one, one text in particular that I want to commend to you, and, and this might be a, a psalm that you maybe have read through and have found comfort in, because it thinks of, God's omniscience, right, where it thinks about how God knows all things, but then it's also God's um, omnipresence, right, how God is everywhere. And what that means for a believer in Christ is powerful, right, because that means that our God is always with us, and he knows all things about us. And as a redeemed creature, there's nothing that I want more than my God to know me, right, and to be there with me. So, um, yeah, so, so I'll just commend the whole psalm to you. But specifically in Psalm 193, I want to look at verses 7 through 10. So on your notes, who be willing to read uh, verses 7 through 10? Yeah, Matt. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea... Even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's this rhetorical question. Uh, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Right? And, you know, uh, we, we could follow that up, right? Jonah has an opinion to say on this, right? He's like, yeah, I tried. You know, it's like, good luck, right? Yeah, because God is not a territorial deity, right? He's creator, and he's, and he's, not, he's not bound uh, by the limitations of space. So let's also look at um, who who can get Second Corinthians or sorry Second Chronicles two, and then I need someone for Isaiah sixty six. So we can get Second Chronicles two for me on your notes. But who is able to build him a house, since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him? 
Who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before him? Yeah, right. Again, another rhetorical question. It's like, what can we build that would contain him, right? And, and that's when we say this idea of immensity, we're denying nothing can contain God, right? Yeah, and then Isaiah 66, 1. This is so beautiful. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest, right? Again, just, just asking questions, for us to see this reality of this creator-creature distinction, that God and God alone is not limited by these things. So, yeah. In Second Chronicles, um, who was speaking during that time? Was that like Solomon or was that David? Yes, I'm pretty sure it's Solomon, but let me go back and... Yes. 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 Yeah. So think of it this way. Um, this is an example that Solomon is understanding, and then from that example itself, that it then goes beyond. Um, uh, from, from the lesser to the greater, right? So this, this house can't contain God because God himself can't be contained, right? Where, where it uses, um, yeah, the language, um, uh, yeah, uh, since even uh, the highest heaven, right, cannot contain him, right? So there's, there's no created reality that can contain God. And then, but you're right, though, he's also trying to express it, but even this little house, this dinky house, right, that, that we're building for him, where he, where it's his special presence that dwells with us. We're going to hit on that in a minute, where we try to make some of these nuances. But even that, right, can't contain him, right? And, but, but, but he's using that in, from a way of contrast to draw near in worship. Like how, how important and how that should humble us, that God has drawn near to us, right? Um, and we would understand that, that he would draw near to us by grace, right? All right, so um, but that's a really good question. So, um, so um, Burkhoff, he helpfully provides three characterizations and then a helpful comparison. So when we, when we talk about um, beings in space or three modes of presence in space, there, there's three senses, right? And what we're, again, what we're trying to do is help to bring out some of these nuances between creator and creature, right? But creature, there's, there's two parts to creature, and we're going to hit on that. So the first one is bodies, right? So bodies are things related to creatures, but we think of like humans or animals or things of that flavor. So humans are in space circumscriptively because they are bounded by it, right? So there's this idea of, you know, mass and matter um, from, from that standpoint. And then there's a second nuance, right? Okay, so then, so that's how, that's how, um, they are present in space. But then secondly, then we deal with finite spirits, right? So you could think of what, well, what's an example of a finite spirit? That's an angel, right? So angels are ministering spirits. So an angel is a finite spirit, um, and they are in space definitively since they are not everywhere, but only in a certain definitive place. So, so, in the, so there's a sense in which God is a spirit and that angels are spirits, but we also have to make a distinction between them because angels are created spirits. And so they're only in a definitive place at any given time, whereas God, thirdly, is in space. And again, some of these terms, you know, you'll hear it this time and, and, and it might, uh, might release, you know, from, from memory, but God is in space repletively because he fills all space, right? In that sense, it's replete. He is not absent from any part of it, nor more present in one part than in any other, right? So it is all of his essence in all places. So, um, so, th so those are the three ways, right? And what we're doing is we're trying to help capture that creator-creature distinction, and we think of those two nuances with creatures, right? Creatures like humans or animals, 
and then creatures like finite spirits. So next, I want us to think about now a comparison. And, and again, I seem, uh, we constantly keep going back to it's really important that we make this creator-creature distinct, uh, distinction. So, um, so, <clears throat> so on your notes, we're going to look at this idea of imminence and transcendence. God, so the idea of imminence is God drawing near right to creation. But then transcendence is this idea of God who is separate from creation, right? It's like this otherness uh, that, that, he, that he is separate from. And sometimes um, holiness, right, will carry this idea that God is just separate. He is other, right? And so that's this idea of transcendence. Well, how does this relate to the idea of God's immensity or as we think about space? Well, um, so in one sense, God is everywhere in space, right? So that's the idea of imminence or him drawing near and relating to us. But then God is above and transcends space, right? Which is his transcendence. And it leads to these two ideas that, we, that we, we need to affirm both of these things. So Burkhoff, he helpfully identifies this. Where he says, if we deny this idea of transcendence or this idea of God being separate from creation, and all we do is affirm his imminence or his closeness, how God relates to creation, how he enters in, right, with his creatures in, in time and space, this will result in pantheism, right? Because we no longer make this creator-creature distinction, and so God becomes this created reality, right? God is all things, because God is everywhere. And we don't affirm this reality at the same time that God is separate from his creation. But at the same time, right, and, and, and maybe you've heard the phrase, right, where people are like, yeah, well, we're all God, right? Because we're all God's creation, you know? And, and, and in this mindset is this idea that because God has created creation and in, in some weird sense is creation itself, it kind of blurs these distinctions together. And really this is, this is the religion of Hinduism, right? Where it's like God is everything and is in everything, and so we then honor everything as though it's, as though it's God. So that's if we deny transcendence or a separateness, right? But then at the same time, what happens if we deny God's imminence or where God draws near to us and relates to us, and all we do is affirm his otherness or we affirm his separateness, right? What happens? Well, and think of it this way. What happens is we end up with this God of deism, right? Where God no longer relates to creatures. God is not involved in time and history, right? God is, in that sense, he's outside of space and time. He's not involved. And if you will, it's like the earth is a clock. He created it, set it up, and now it's just the clock just going. And he's, and he's, and he's you know, uh, laissez-faire, hands off, right? Completely leaving the world. And, and that would be, you know, an, an example of this would be the, um, uh, Thomas Jefferson, one of the America's uh, founding fathers, right? In, uh, in the time of, you know, this rationalism in, in the 1700s, you know, basically came to a god of, of deism, right? So when we think of space, it's important that we make these important nuances, right? Both creator-creature distinction, that God is separate from, but also enters into and relates to us, right? It's, it's not either or, but it's... But it's both and. Oh, can I just reference a yeah. text that I think is really good in that regard is Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, mm. where it says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's beautiful. So you have that aspect of this transcendence of God and yes. yet his imminence with the brokenhearted. Yes. So, yeah. yeah, that is sweetness right there. Yeah. 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 So um, similar question you asked earlier, Trayvon, in regards to um, this aspect of 
than, than God kind of dwelling in a temple, or, or we see this kind of language, like for example, in Genesis 3, right? It says that God walked in, in the cool of the day or the cool of the morning, right? Well, then how do we affirm this idea that, that God walked in the Garden of Eden, and yet at the same time that God is everywhere, right? Where we're referring to his omnipresence, that he fills all of space with all of his, all of his being or all of his essence, right? Or, or this idea that the spirit indwells us with his favorable presence, or that, um, uh, like the example of the temple, right? That, that he filled the temple. And again, um, uh, there are different senses in which God can dwell favorably with men and women, and those are just different nuances from the idea that God in his essence dwells or fills all of space and is not limited to space. That God, um, though, though he dwells in these special ways, and, and to us, it's to our advantage, right? It helps, it helps us as it communicates different things to us, but God is not in any, in any sense contained by these very things um, that he has created. So, I know we've covered God's eternity and then God's immensity. So any questions or comments or thoughts before we kind of hop into to our next section? I find it uh, ironic that you are discussing immensity in the little space of time that we have. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I feel it. Uh, yeah, true. All right. Good. Well, um, so we've got two more sections, and really we're going to focus a majority of the time related to God's immutability and then impassibility as a subset of that. So on your notes, um, we have the ideas here on your heading, immutability and impassibility, or the negation of all mutation or change in God, right? That'd be immutability, right? You think of mutation. And then impassibility, the negation of all passion in God. So we see in our confession of faith, right, about the, on, on, our, on our notes here, that God is without body, parts, or passions, right? And then it goes a little bit further where it says, who is immutable, right? So what, is, what are these terms referring to, and how should this help us as we worship God and draw near to him? So, and there's definitely overlap from what we, what we, what we touched on last week, right? Um, that uh, we see this idea of God not changing, right? That God doesn't mutate. There's no potential in God. He doesn't change for the better. There's nothing better for him to turn into. And we, we, we talked about this, that God is simple in that sense, that he doesn't have parts or divisions. And that that's also connected to this idea of God having life in himself. He doesn't need anyone else, right? So all these ideas, what we're going to find as we go through uh, our doc the doctrine of God, all of these ideas overlap together and help us to understand these, these different aspects. So uh, let, let's read a couple, of, uh, a couple of these texts. So uh, on your notes, you'll see Malachi 3.6. Can I get a volunteer to read Malachi 3.6? All right. Crystal. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Yeah, Excellent. Yeah, in that text, Exodus 3.14, where I just took the first part there, God says to Moses, I am who I am. Or in Isaiah 48.12, right, where Isaiah is, um, uh, uh, has recorded this, where we see this reflection from Exodus 3.14. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. All right, and then who can get... Uh, James 1, verse 17, who can get that for us? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. All right, excellent. Right, and, and notice that at the, at the very end, right? There is no variation or shadow as though there was change in God, Right? And then in Hebrews 1, verses 11 through 12, it says, They will perish, but you remain. Right? This text looks familiar, right? Because we read it earlier from, from, uh, from, from the Psalms. Uh, they will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years 
will have no end. And so we notice not only this idea of God's eternity, like we covered from, from, with this psalm in that section, but also this idea that, um, uh, that God is not like a garment that's changed, right? And again, you can see how this is connected with this idea that his years do not end. So there, there is no change that's found in God, and all of his attributes are necessarily in harmony with one another. Right? And we saw that with, with, with this idea of God's name, the I am who I am. He's the eternal I am who never changes. So next on your notes, if you look down, there's a quote from Burkhoff, and I, I thought this was helpful because he tries to capture this idea that God doesn't change, but then we see things like, for example, uh, you know, texts that would say, you know, God relented or God repented and then spared the Ninevites, right? But then there's texts like in Numbers where it says, God's not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should what? That he should repent or that he should relent. So then, and, and Burkhoff, and again, this is why I love Burkhoff because he does it in like three paragraphs, right? Where it takes most of us like a book, you know, to really kind of like work through it and help make these connections. So, so read this with me, right? Where it says, there is change round about him, referring to God, change in the relations of men to him, but there is no change in his being, his attributes, his purpose, his motives of action, or his promises. The purpose to create was eternal with him, and there was no change in him when this purpose was realized by a single eternal act of his will. So just pause for a second. I think that's really helpful, right? Because Change is found, right, in creatures and in creation. Um, but instead, right, when we think about his being and his attributes, his purposes, his motives of action, and his promises, right, they extend back to eternity with God. And one of the things that we're going to find as we work through this idea of God's decree, right, is we're gonna, that, that these uh, are eternal decrees that then come into fruition similar to creation, right? And, uh, and so we're going to work through that, right, because that... Same thing, kind of presses on our mind um, some of the challenges associated with this, you know, if you will, this eternal act. But then notice, uh, again, we pick up where it says, and if scripture speaks of his repenting, changing his intention, or altering his relation to sinners when they repent, we should remember that this is only an anthropopathic way of speaking. And uh, uh, in reality, the change is not in God, but in man and in man's relation to God. So anthropopathic is where we assign, uh, if you will, human emotions uh, um, to, to God, right? And same way of anthropomorphism, right, can be where we're ascribing like an arm or an eye to God, right? God doesn't have an arm or an eye or a wing or any of those things. And similar, he doesn't have... Um, uh, 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 what we would, we would call um, uh, some, some of these changes um, that we see. So, so this idea of immutability is that God does not change in and of himself. He is, in that sense, the infinitely blessed God, right? Uh, nothing to be added to, nothing to be taken away from. Now, uh, so when we think about this, so impassibility is a subset of God's immutability. Again, immutability being no change, no mutation. And now, passions is an older word. We don't use passions that often. The only example I could really think of where we use passions is, uh, you guys remember you know, the film, The Passion of the Christ, right? Where passion has this idea of suffering, right? And it was, and it was the suffering of Christ. So, um, so in that sense, it, it's connecting to this older term that was used, you know, many, many years ago. Um, and instead, in our modern day, it's more common for us to use the term emotions, right? But what we want to do or want to be careful of is when we use the term emotions, it's a, it's a less precise meaning than some of the meaning that's used from, you know, theology, uh, from church history, when it uses these terms like passion uh, or this other term, affection. And we're going to go into both of those to, to help us rightly think through uh, these things and then how they relate to our understanding of uh, God's being. So passion 
uh, refers um, in, in some sense, uh, or at least historically, to suffering, where one is acted upon and there's a change in, this, in their state for the worse, right? So if you want to think of it this way, um, when we think of passions, uh, that person is acted upon and the state they're in is now uh, worse than when it was before that happened, right? And so that would be considered uh, the passions, right? And then affections are on the other side. If you will, affections are more so related to, to good or, or virtues, right? And, uh, but it also has this idea of change because when, a, um, uh, when you become affected, right, for the better, that would be uh, using this, this term affections, right? And maybe you guys have, uh, I know um, I've referenced before uh, Thomas Chalmers, his little booklet, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Right? It's a change in us for the better. Or uh, Jonathan Edwards, he's got um, uh, religious affections where he talks about what is it that work in us that changes us, but it's a change for the better. Right? So those are, the, those are the ways that we're trying to use these terms when we think about it. So when we're negating in God this idea of passions, right, and, and in a certain sense uh, uh, the, the, any, any type of creatureliness with affections, what, what is it exactly um, that we are saying, right? What we're saying is that there is nothing that can change God's being to make him less happy or more happy in himself. And, I, and there's this quote uh, from Mark Jones' book, uh, and, and this was a helpful book uh, um, that I'd recommend as well for you guys. I actually uh, ran out of room on the resources, and I uh, you know, couldn't go beyond the printed margin. But that's another helpful book if you want to. Um, uh, Mark Jones, the book is God Is. And he does a really helpful job thinking about who God is and then how should we think about God in light of the coming of Christ and then thinking through some applications. So again, uh, I, wa- I want to commend that, commend that to you. So I want to read this because I think he captures this really well. Um, where he says, on your notes, not only would he then be changeable, but also he would not be infinitely blessed. Since God knows all things eternally and thus infallibly, he cannot, quote-unquote, respond to events in a way that either surprises or grieves him. In no way is God subject to his creatures. He is the infinite creator. We are the finite creatures. For God to experience passions would mean that God changes. And he gives this example. The passion of anger is the acquiring of one quality, rage, by losing another, peace or joy. God cannot lose his infinite blessedness. Uh, So when we speak of the anger of God, we do so only figuratively or improperly. Anger is an affection of the divine will toward evil, right? So it's helping us, so it's language that's used to better help us understand how God is relating with creatures, but at the same time, where we're not saying something about God that would not necessarily be true about who he is in himself. And one of the things that's connected to this, and and we'll get into this when we cover this idea of God's decree, is that God has decreed and knows all things from eternity. And so there is no change or surprise in God that would either make him the better or the worse, but all things are that outworking of that divine will from all eternity. And so then, uh, lastly on your notes, you guys can see that section on, on infinity. And I just wanted to take a, um, just a, a brief moment before we open up for questions uh, or, or any comments. I want, I want us just to pause and think about this, right? As, we, as our minds are being expanded, thinking about uh, God's infinity as it relates to these different ideas, right? His um, eternality, to him being immutable, to him being immense, that he fills all space and is not contained or limited by it. And that truly, as Psalm 145.3 says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Think of what this means for our enjoyment of the infinitely blessed God. How there will be no end to his infinite enjoyment. How what we enjoy now of the Lord is only a foretaste 
of the infinitely blessed God that we will then know to that greater measure in that state of resurrection, right? So that's just that beautiful idea when we think about God and thinking upon these deeper things. So any, um, so any questions or comments or thoughts as we work through this material? Yeah. Can you explain a little bit more on when you wrote down three modes of presence? Yes. If you could emphasize the nuance part, I, I didn't get that. Yeah, yeah. So it, we were going over the creator-creature distinction when we think about space. So with creatures, we have two kinds of creatures, creatures with bodies and creatures that are spirits. So creatures with bodies, right? So uh, uh, they use this really technical term circumscriptively, um, which means that, uh, um, uh, that they dwell, um, uh, that, they, that they are bounded by that space, right, with, with, with their bodies. Then you have finite spirits that are only in a space at a definitive point in time, right? And, that, and that's contrasted with God who is a spirit, but he's not bound by space and fills all of space with his entire essence. So that, 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 that was the three nuances, just trying to help us better understand some of that creature-creator distinction. So it says three modes of presence. I see imminence, I see transcendence. Correct. I did, so I didn't list them on there. It was more of a space thing. What's the third one? Um, related to God. So you had finite spirits. So let me pause for a second. Imminence and transcendence was a different idea and a different thought. So the first three modes of existence, I don't list on your notes page. That may help you. Oh, okay. and, and it was the three things related to bodies, finite spirits, and then God as a spirit, and thinking about how each of those three relate to, to space. All right. Uh, any other questions or comments or, or thoughts? All right. Well, let's go ahead. Let's um, let's thank we'll thank the Lord for our time, and then we'll head in for uh, for corporate worship. Father, we do worship you and thank you as we get to draw near to you, because you're the God who has first drawn near to us, and truly, your word is precious to us as you reveal who you are to these finite, feeble little minds, and we're so thankful. Not only this, but that you're a gracious God and that you draw near to us in grace, not in wrath to consume us. Oh, how our sins deserve this. But how you draw near in grace. And so we appropriately respond that we love you and we pray, please help us now as we think on these things, as we uh, increase in our knowledge of you, and we increase love for you, and as we go into corporate worship. We ask for your blessing on this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.